Good afternoon and welcome to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg and we're live for an hour each weekday afternoon. Beginning now, we have an hour to take your calls. If you have questions about the Bible or the Christian faith that you would like to call in and uh, raise for conversation, if you see things differently than the host and wish to disagree with the host, you're always welcome to call about that. The number to call is 844-484-5737. I think we have some, yeah, we have a couple lines open right now if you want to try to get through. 844-484-5737. And speaking to people who disagree with the host, uh, tomorrow evening, only a couple hours after this program ends, there's going to be a debate between yours truly and a dispensationalist. I've never, uh, uh, there's a host who, uh, the host of this debate, I guess, has a YouTube channel I was not familiar with, and he asked me if I would debate this dispensationalist, whom I also was not familiar with, so uh, I'm going to be among strangers here, but it's quite uh, quite all right. I'm looking forward to it. That's tomorrow at 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific time. I've been given a list of things he would like to debate about. It, it seems to me like we should have separate debates about all of them, or about each of them, I should say. But uh, the subject's apparently going to be about the land promises to Israel. Are they fulfilled or unfulfilled? Is Jesus the only seed of Abraham? Are the descendants of Abraham the seed too? Uh, Galatians four twenty-eight through 31, are the Jews uh, the children of the flesh? Uh, who is the Israel of God? Uh, what does all Israel will be saved mean? And will there be a future temple? That's a lot of stuff, and I don't know how we'll fit that all in, but that's what they asked. So that's uh, if you're interested, you can go to our website, thenarrowpath.com. That's thenarrowpath.com. Under the tab that says Announcements, you can find the way to get this debate is on YouTube, I guess. I think it's streamed live to YouTube. And there's a YouTube uh, link up there, you're, you know, you can you can go on and watch it tomorrow. Uh, so that's at 5 p.m. Pacific time, uh, Friday, tomorrow. And uh, having said that, I have no other... Oh, well, I do have an announcement. I, I should have been announcing some things all week long. I'm a little late on, the, on this. I've, one is that uh, Saturday morning in Temecula, we have a men's Bible study, usually once a month. We've missed a few of these from time to time, but... Uh, We're having it this Saturday. That's the third Saturday of each month in Temecula, a men's Bible study that I teach. And then uh, on the same day, the third Saturday of each month, we usually have a meeting in Buena Park where each time we take a book of the Bible um, and uh, have a, uh, a survey and a complete introduction to the book. And that's coming up this Saturday too. So Uh, tomorrow we have the debate, and then the next day we have men's Bible study in the morning, and then a meeting that's open to anybody in Buena Park Saturday night. If any of those things interest you, you can get all the information you need to participate at our website, thenarrowpath.com, under the tab that says Announcements. All right, that's enough announcements for today. Let's talk to Sandy from San Jose, California. Hey, Sandy, good to hear from you. Always good to talk to you, Steve, for your debate tomorrow night. Just tell him to read the Bible in Joshua, where it says all that was promised to God, to Israel, they got it, you know. But anyway, you know, Sounds you know, like it answers that question, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, check it off the box. And yeah. then, you know, a couple of weeks ago, someone had called about, refused to be 
like, does God get offended? And clearly he doesn't because he's omniscient. He went to your website on the topic of lectures and went to refuse to be uh, offended. He read that and said clearly he knows that he's not offended. Anyway, that's enough of my uh, preamble. Hey, um, calling calling specifically about so-called churches that read through a book at a time, of course, Calvary Chapel comes up in that. What I have found, and I'm curious to your opinion on this, um, is most churches that quote unquote, you know, read a verse at a time, what they do is they read a verse or verses and then take it and interpret it into some other meaning. For example, you've got the book of Hebrews, you know, long ago, many times God spoke, right? But in these last days, he spoke through his son. Then they'll go on and on in that. And then they'll do a whole sermon on why we're at the end of the world and why this is the last day. So I don't think there are many churches out there, and correct me if I'm wrong, Steve, that actually um, execute the passage in the way you do. But I think they're all fundamentally topics. We're going to read through the book of this. Here's the topic. We're going to focus on that. So curious about your opinions on that, Steve. Yeah, that's called springboard preaching, where you find a text— ah where you have a text that you, from which you can springboard into the topic you want to talk about. That, lots of sermons are that way. Uh, usually, you mentioned Calvary Chapel goes verse by verse through the Bible. Uh, on, it seems to me that on Sunday mornings, Chuck Smith used to do that, but in the evenings, he would read, you know, he'd go through verse by verse. And yeah, it, well, I mean, it's kind of hard to avoid doing some topical teaching in a verse by verse, because you, you come to a passage as you're going through a chapter, uh, which is very uh, relevant, and you know that the people listening are curious about it. Maybe they've heard it in a certain context uh, as being about a certain subject, and maybe maybe what they've heard you think is wrong, or maybe you feel like this is something mm-hmm. to be emphasized. So I, I remember uh, Chuck Smith's way of going through the Bible when, when I was at Calvary Chapel in the 70s was that he had the congregation was supposed to read 10 chapters a week going through the Bible, and then on Sunday night, he would teach through those 10 chapters. And on the Sunday morning, he would take a text from one of the chapters and preach a sermon on it, you know, topically. But, of course, going through the 10 chapters in the evening, you know, there, there were plenty of, uh, just say, rabbit trails where we, he'd get off onto various mm-hmm. topics. And I do that, too, when I'm teaching. I mean, I try to be—I I used to think that I learned to teach verse by verse from Chuck because I sat under him for five years from the time I was a teenager right. until I was a young adult. And, and I was, I, I, you know, everything I learned initially, I learned from Chuck. So I always figured that the way I teach through the Bible is very much the way Chuck did. And then I moved away from Orange County, didn't hear Chuck for a long time. And, uh, and after I'd been teaching for a while, I did visit again. I realized that the way he taught was not quite uh, the way mm-hmm. I, had, I had come to teach. But um, part of the reason was because I... Uh, I, I have this desire to, uh, to, for my listeners to be able to know the various views that may exist uh, on, on the subjects that we're talking about. And uh, it wasn't always a priority for Chuck. In fact, sometimes I think he didn't want to talk about the other views. So that's just a different philosophy of teaching than, than I have. And that you ask if there's many other teachers who do what I do. Maybe. I, I don't know. I, I have to say... I mean, I'm not trying to make myself sound unusual or unique. I just, I, I don't know very many teachers who have the same philosophy of teaching through the Bible that I have. But, but uh, I'm sure there are others. It's a big world. And of course, 
Yeah, no, and I, I just wanted to highlight that because I think uh, when people call up and ask for great churches to attend, I think the line that you give a lot is, are they good fellowship? Are they nice people? Are they warm body? You know, in terms of preaching exposi- expositionally, is that the right word? Mm-hmm. I, I haven't seen that in churches. So, And then one other question, this will be quick. Elihu, the fourth person who jumps in in the book of Job, mm-hmm. um, I have read commentaries, I've looked online, it seems like better than the other three. It seems like he's got some good advice, but he's off too. And I'm, what do you say, Steve Gregg, about Elihu? Well, Elihu is a mysterious character because, first of all, when we read of Job's trials and we read that his, free, his three friends came and they sat for seven days without speaking, and then they began to talk mm-hmm. after Job began to talk. And it goes through all these cycles of speeches and, and in some respects, a debate between Job and these guys about interpreting why Job is suffering as he is. Um, It's like there's chapter after chapter after chapter of these three guys, and then they fall silent. It's like they they realize they can't get anywhere with Job, and he's not getting anywhere with them. So those cycles of debate end after, you know, 20-something, 30-something chapters, I suppose. No, 20-something, I guess. And, Mm -hmm. And then, of course... Elihu starts speaking. I mean, we've never heard of him until then. Mm-hmm. And he, mm-hmm. he speaks, he introduces himself as a younger man. And he said he hadn't spoken previously because he thought the aged one should have the first chance to try to address Job's problem. Mm-hmm. So, so apparently he was there the whole time listening to the debates, but we didn't know it. We weren't alerted to it. And because he was younger, he thought he'd hold his peace until they were all done. Which is one thing in his favor. <laughs> he was he had a, a measure of humility, you know, um, but but his theories were not really. I can't find any more light in Elihu's theories than in the other guys. And in some respects, it seems like he had the same opinion they did that uh, Job mm-hmm. was suffering because there was something God found wrong with him, and that you mm-hmm. know best thing Job could do would be to repent and uh, and let God restore him. Well. Of course, that's pretty much what the other guys have been saying, too. So it's very difficult to pick out of Elihu's speech uh, much unique or or fresh or, uh, you know, something that wasn't said earlier in the other speeches. Uh, I've, I've heard some people say that they thought Elihu was the prophet of God and that, you know, when he finally spoke up, finally, you know, some authoritative wisdom came forth. But I... I really can't see it, anything different in the content of Elihu's message than was in the other guys. Uh, other Many commentators, in fact, I, I've heard many people say this, commentators and, and preachers, that Elihu was an arrogant young man. Well, I, I, mm. I'm not pick, I don't pick that up either from him. I don't see him as particularly arrogant. I don't see him as the prophet of God. I just see him as another guy like the other three who held his peace until the end and then, and then ventilated well, thank you, Steve. I, I was under a very similar opinion, and so I'm not crazy. Maybe the commentaries are, but uh, I, by the way, I, I love the book of Job. I, I can almost say it's one of my favorite books now, but it's hard to it's say. It's a great which, book. You know, I love it, too. No, it's just anyway. But thank you, Steve. On to next caller. God bless, brother. Okay, Sandy. Great talking to you. Bye now. Thanks. Uh, Jimmy from Staten Island, New York. Welcome to The Narrow Path, Jimmy. Hi, Steve. Hi. Um, I got a, a quick question. I'm on my way out to a Bible study, so I'll take the answer over here. 
Um, Ezekiel 36, 25 and 26, I'm going to read them and then one other verse. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you an heart of flesh. Now, would you say this is the rebirth, the regeneration? The new covenant? Yes. Uh Uh-huh. All right, so if we go to um, Romans chapter 10, um, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So this heart that man believes unto righteousness, is that the heart of stone? Or the heart of flesh we just read in Ezekiel uh, 36. It's a heart of... I'll take the answer over to you. Okay, yeah. Well, I believe that the heart of stone becomes a heart of flesh or is replaced by a heart of flesh when when it turns to God, when it it confesses Christ as Lord, when it believes in, you know, that Jesus is risen from the dead, as Paul said. So, you know, persons with a heart of stone... Uh, perhaps, I'm pretty sure you're Calvinistic because we've talked before, but uh, you probably think that a heart of stone could never believe, uh, which is the Calvinist idea. The idea of Calvinism is that the unregenerate are dead in trespasses and sins, and therefore they can't believe or repent. Uh, Of course, the Bible never tells us that those who are dead in trespasses and sins cannot repent. And a heart of stone is another image. Of course, no one has an actual heart of stone in their body. Um, stone is not part of our biological makeup, and uh, and neither does anyone have a literally dead heart, or people are not literally dead before they repent. This is a figure of speech, of course. Both of them convey the idea of somebody who's alienated from God and uh, and certainly not very soft toward God, but it does not indicate that that can't change, and uh, you know, and and when God you know, convinces somebody that they, uh, that Jesus is Lord and, and that Jesus rose from the dead and they are pierced in their hearts, as it says uh, in Acts chapter 2, when they heard Peter preach, they were pierced in their hearts. Um, you know, they, then they, they repented. Now, then God gave them a new heart. When people repent, it's a result of receiving the Holy Spirit that they receive a new heart. And of course, receiving the Spirit is mentioned in this Ezekiel passage along with it. You know, he'll give them a new heart and he'll give them his Spirit. Well, that's what happens when people repent and become believers in Christ. Uh, so it, it's, a, it's a stony, well, I should say this. The Bible doesn't say that everybody before they're a Christian has a heart of stone. That's another Calvinistic trick. They find a statement that says somebody has a heart of stone and they say, see, therefore, no one can repent unless God changes them. Well, uh, it, the Bible nowhere says that everybody has a heart of stone. Ezekiel is writing to the people of Israel, who through hundreds of years of history had shown themselves unwilling to change their hearts. They worshipped idols. They killed their prophets. They, they satisfied their own lusts. They ignored the law of God. They had hearts of stone. That doesn't mean that everyone on the planet has a heart of stone. A heart of stone is obviously a particularly hard heart, but the Bible nowhere tells us that everybody on the planet who's not a Christian has a heart as hard as that. But even if they do, 
no one, uh, at least no one in Scripture, ever said that a heart of stone or a dead person, person dead in trespass and sins, cannot repent or believe. And uh, after all, the prodigal son was dead, his father said. My son was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost, and now he's found. Being lost is being dead to your father. And yet, while the prodigal son was in that condition of being lost and dead, he came to his senses and said, I'm going to go home and, and repent to my father. So the Bible nowhere suggests that people with a heart of stone or people who are said to be dead can't repent. But, uh, you know, it also doesn't say that everybody who's not saved has a heart of stone. Some people are very hard-hearted, though, uh, you know, there are scriptures like Psalm 95 that urges the Jews not to harden their hearts as their ancestors did. So it suggests their hearts were not as hard yet as their ancestors' hearts were. But they better beware not to become as hard-hearted as them. So the idea that, you know, these people have a heart of stone, well, yeah. Yeah, I guess one could make that case from Israel's history of killing the prophets and so forth. But um, that doesn't mean that every human being at all times has what would be described as a heart of stone. So that'd be my response to that. I, I don't see any problem with harmonizing those statements. Unless we find a statement that says, you know, everyone has a heart of stone and that means they can't repent. But that's uh, precisely what I don't find anywhere in Scripture. All right, let's talk to Rhea from Massachusetts. Welcome to The Narrow Path. Hi. Um, um, thank you for taking my call. Um, Luke chapter 17, verses 5 through 10, and the apostles said, Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith, is a grain of mustard seed, you would say unto the sycamore or whatever tree, uh, be thou plucked up by the root, be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. Then it switches to the unprofitable servant narrative, which you talked about a few days ago. But my my thing is, uh, you know, which of you would say these are things that you commanded us to do, we are just unprofitable servants. Um, how does that... Uh, five and six in chapter seventeen relate to. I mean, uh, I understand seven through ten that we're unprofitable servants because we're things that we're commanded to do. But my question is how that all relates, because he says, "But which of you in in verse seven, but which of you having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him, by and by, when he is um, come." Yeah, I don't have the, I don't have the Greek text in front of you, but my, the translation I'm looking at doesn't say "but," but says "and." Now I'm not sure. I mean, there's a difference between okay. "and." There's a difference between "and" and "but" in the Greek, but I'm not looking at the Greek text right now, so I can't tell you whether it's "but" or "and." But as far as your okay, question is concerned, okay. Okay, I've got the New King James. Yeah, um, I would just say this: that verses one through ten in uh, Luke 17 give the impression that there are four different topics being brought up. Verses 1 and 2 are on seemingly one subject, which is you don't want to um, uh, stumble little ones. You don't want to stumble people unnecessarily. Then verses 3 and 4 talk about the need to forgive. And then verses 5 and 6 talk about the you know if you have great faith, you can accomplish great things. And then verses 7 through 10 talk about 
uh, doing all that you're told to do and, and at the end of it saying, I'm an unprof- unprofitable servant. I've only done what was my duty to do. Now, there's a sense which these four subjects seem to be isolated in meaning from each other, in which case Jesus is just drifting from one point to the next without, without developing a single thought. I mean, he's, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, he, he speaks a few verses about one subject, then a, a few verses about another subject, and so forth. And so it's not, it wouldn't be strange if these four segments had nothing directly to do with each other, or if they, if they failed to uh, be a flow of thought, but just, uh, they were just four different things he taught about in, on one occasion. On the other hand, I've sometimes seen a possibility of them being related to each other. It's, it's not clear. It, it might even be seen to be tenuous. But uh, in, my, in my talk that you can find on our website called uh, Refuse to be Offended, I actually use this passage and mention that there are four segments of it and that it can be seen as developing this idea of how to uh, avoid offenses. Uh, the very first two verses tell us to avoid offending other people. That means stumbling other people. And then, of course, the second two verses would be telling us how to not be offended ourselves. When somebody does something offensive to us or sins against us, we should uh, you know, forgive them. And uh, we should confront them and, and, and forgive them, even if it's seven times in one day, he says. Now, that would be the opposite of taking offense at somebody's actions. So the first two verses would talk about the need not to give offense to others and stumble others. Then the next is how to avoid being offended yourself. Now, if, if we see offenses as the theme of these first four verses, it might be that they continue to be at least relevant to the remaining six verses in the, in the series because verse 5 begins with the disciples responding to verse 4. When Jesus said, if your brother sins against you seven times a day and says, I repent seven times, then you shall forgive him. The apostle said to him, Lord, increase our faith. Sounds like it's saying, you're asking a lot of us, Lord. You know, if if my brother does something wrong to me seven times in one day, I'm supposed to forgive him that many times. That's pretty, pretty challenging. I don't know if I can do that. You better increase my faith. Uh, We can't do this without you, you know, giving us more faith to do this. And his answer could be seen as having two parts. One is faith can accomplish more than you think. If you have faith that like a mustard seed, you could say to the sycamine tree, be cast into the sea or mulberry tree, and it'll be plucked up by the roots uh, and thrown into the sea. Okay, so faith, faith then is trusting God. Faith is having a high view of God's faithfulness and abilities. When we trust God to do what is miraculous, we're esteeming God highly. We're, 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 telling, we're simply telling ourselves, God is powerful and God is faithful, and I believe him. That's, that's what believing is, is esteeming someone to be faithful and trustworthy. Now, but then the other part, you know, once you've done everything you're supposed to do, say we're unprofitable servants, would be having a low view of yourself. So in a sense, verses uh, five and six could be seen as, emphasize the need to have a very high view of God and the remaining verses of the, of the 10 being having a very low opinion of yourself. Now, why would that be relevant? Well, if you're talking about offenses and talking about forgiving somebody rather than taking offense, 
Well, one thing is if the lower a view of yourself that you have, the less likely you are to see a reason to be offended when somebody has done something wrong to you. Uh, it's the more proud you are, the more entitled you feel, the more arrogant you are, uh, the more likely you are to be offended when someone slights you or when someone doesn't please you or something. But the more you see yourself as an unprofitable servant, the less you'll see reason to be offended if people don't treat you like a king, you know, if people don't treat you like you'd like to be treated. Um, the lower your view of yourself, the easier it'll be to avoid taking offense. And the higher view you have of God, the more you trust God in the matter, also the easier it'll be not to take offense. Because when somebody does you wrong, uh, you might feel like, well, I need to retaliate in some way. I need to hold this against them until I can get back at them so that they know that they can't get away with this kind of stuff. I mean, if they don't know that, they're likely to keep going. I'm going to be their victim for the rest of my life. Well, not necessarily. Uh, if, if you turn the other cheek, if you love your enemy, if you do good to those who persecute you, if you forgive those who have offended you, um, well, then you can trust, you're trusting yourself to God. You're entrusting yourself to God. That's having a high view of God that allows you to feel it's safe to trust God in this matter. I don't have to take matters in my hand. I have a high view of God and a low view of myself. And that, that makes it much easier for me not to be offended. It says in 1 Peter 4.19, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as unto a faithful creator. In other words, if you're suffering for for no good reason, that is, you haven't deserved it, instead of retaliating and taking matters into your own hands, uh, you can just commit yourself to God like Jesus did. Father, forgive them. And into your hands I, I, I commit my spirit. And he says you, you do that because he's a faithful creator. So you put your trust in him. And, and don't think overly highly of yourself and your own entitlement and privilege. And you'll find it much easier not to, not to be offended and to, and to forgive those who wrong you. Hey, I'm out of time for this segment. I hope that might be helpful. You're listening to The Narrow Path. We have another half hour coming up. Don't go away. Our website is thenarrowpath.com. I'll be back in 30 seconds. The Narrow Path is one feature of the teaching ministry of Steve Gregg. Steve's philosophy of teaching is to educate, not indoctrinate his listeners. He believes that Christians should learn to think for themselves about the Bible and not be dependent on him or any other teacher for their convictions. We hope to teach Christians how to think, not what to think about the Bible. Welcome back to The Narrow Path. My name is Steve Gregg, and uh, we are live for another half hour taking your calls. It looks to me like all our lines are full at the moment, but if you want to try in a few minutes, you might catch a line open at 844-484-5737. And I want to remind you, since I don't have many days left to do so, that uh, we have some events coming up uh, this weekend. Uh, that I should have probably mentioned more about earlier in the week, but I wasn't thinking about it. That's me, absent-minded. Um, I have a debate, uh, a YouTube debate, with a, a dispensationalist tomorrow night at 5 p.m. Pacific time. You can uh, log on to that, or you can 
tune into that by going to YouTube if you want to. We have it posted. Um, and then on Saturday morning and evening, we have meetings. Uh, this is a once-a-month meeting, usually. Uh, well, when it occurs, it's always on the third Saturday of the month. We have a men's Bible study in Temecula at 8 in the morning. And we have a study in, I think it's going to be Second Timothy this time, uh, Saturday night in Buena Park. If you're interested in those, you can go to thenarrowpath.com and look up uh, under the tab that says Announcements. You'll find uh, how to, how to uh, tap in to those three events in any way you may wish to. The Saturday morning is a men's Bible study. Of course, everything else is open to anybody who wishes to come. Okay, let's talk to, uh, we're going to talk to Terry from Torrance, California. Hi, Terry. Welcome. Oh, Terry must have hung up just as I hit the button. I thought I hit the right button. Okay, I don't think I hung up on you, Terry. Maybe you just got cold feet. Mark from Tampa, Florida. Welcome to The Narrow Path. Yes, uh, I have a question uh, regarding communion. Mm-hmm. Um, being that communion is symbolism, my question is, uh, at my church, I've never been to any other churches, but in my church, when they make communion bread, they do put leaven in it. And uh, I have a concern being that Christ used uh, the symbolism of leaven as sin. What are your thoughts on that? Well, Jesus didn't use the term leaven only to refer to sin. Of course, he did say, beware of the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees, which is their hypocrisy. And another time he mentioned the scribes, leaven of the scribes and Pharisees, referring to their doctrines, it says. Uh, Paul used leaven to, be a, uh, to refer to sin uh, when there was a man living in sexual sin in the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5. He mentions, do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? Now, both of these are speaking of leaven as something that, you know, if you allow a little bit of it in, it spreads and has, a, has a, an impact on its elements. So, but, but, but not only evil is likened to leaven, the kingdom of God is also likened to leaven. In Matthew 13, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman put into three measures of dough until all of it was leavened. So there's, leaven is a good thing there. It's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, he said. So uh, it's, not, it's not the case that leaven always would refer to sin. Some people believe that uh, the leaven in bread, uh, when, when uh, they talk about the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and so forth, that leaven refers to sin because Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5, does speak about keeping the feast. He said, not with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And he's alluding to the spiritual application of the Feast of Unleavened Bread there. So he does seem to suggest that the leaven in the bread at Passover was relevant to uh, a symbol for, uh, for, for sin of some kind. Uh, on the other hand, the reason that God told Israel to not leaven their bread when they were leaving Egypt is because they were in a hurry. They were supposed to eat with their sandals on and their walking stick in their hand. Uh, and, uh, you know, in other words, they're ready to move. And they weren't supposed to wait for the bread to rise, just bake it, just bake it and eat it. You know, you don't have time for it to rise. Don't even put leaven in it. So, um, it, you know, the the unleavened bread at Passover, according to uh, <clears throat> Exodus 12, was to be unleavened because of the haste in which they were going to leave and they shouldn't wait 
so long as to let the bread rise. So don't even put leaven in it, which is in order to make bread rise. So there's a lot of different ways that leaven can be seen. Now, as far as taking communion goes, it is true that the first communion meal took place at a Passover, a Jewish Passover, in which unleavened bread was used because the Passover always used unleavened bread. On the other hand, lots of things were true of the Passover that don't come into our communion service. Um, you know, uh, you know they, they had a whole ritual uh, at that, which we don't follow. So it's, it's, there's nothing in the Bible that says that communion has to be taken with unleavened bread. Now, if somebody felt like that was an important thing, they could always get some unleavened bread. That's not hard to get. And, uh, you know, take communion that way. But I don't, I don't see anything in the Bible that says that communion, even though the first communion was at a Passover meal uh, and therefore did use unleavened bread, they also used wine. Some churches use grape juice, which isn't the same thing as wine either. Um, so, I mean, do we have to use exactly the same <coughs> elements? <coughs> Excuse me. Some people probably think so. I don't particularly think so myself. In fact, we don't even take a Passover meal with it. If we're going to do what they did, we should have lamb and all the, and the bitter herbs at the table too. To, and we should be, have uh, you know the kind of meal they have in the Middle East where they dip their, their uh, bread into a bowl of bitter herbs before they eat it. Uh, this, is, this is just the way the Passover was done. It's not the way that we're required to do the communion meal. So, you know, we don't, we don't know. We don't know if the early church always used unleavened bread when they took communion. Uh, and, I, and there certainly is nothing in the Bible that says we must. Because taking communion, although the first instance of it was at a Passover meal, uh, we're never told that whenever we take uh, communion, we have to follow the Passover regulations. So... You know, that it's, it wouldn't be a big issue to me. It would be to some people. Okay. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. Okay, Mark. Thanks. God bless you. Uh, Jacob from Portland, Oregon. Welcome to the Narrow Path. Hi, Jake. <laughs> Hi, Steve. Hi. Um, I was raised or taught that the scriptures, like First Corinthians one ten, where it talks about uh, having unity and causing divisions, mm-hmm. um, I was taught that the that all in the church had to be completely unified to the point that um, even raising a question about a doctrine or a teaching with somebody, uh, they say you're causing divisions and actually disfellowship you if you continue to ask questions. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering what you feel the scriptures actually teach about that, what, it, what unity really means for Christians. Sure. Well, that verse is perplexing if you take it by itself, but if, if the verses after it are read in conjunction with it, then it's not so difficult. Verse 10 says in 1 Corinthians 1, 10, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Okay, that's the verse. Then he says, for, meaning I'm saying this because there's something that's going on that I'm trying to address with this statement. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Well, what kind of contentions? He says, well, I say this, that each of you says, 
I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Now, we can go on, but this is this gets the point. In verse 10, he says, I want you to all say the same thing. And he says, because I hear you're not all saying the same things. Some of you are saying, I'm of Paul. Some are saying, I'm of Apollos. Some are saying, I'm of Cephas. And some are saying, I'm of Christ. Now, there's, you're saying four different things. I want you to all say the same thing. Which thing? Well, certainly the last thing. I am of Christ. And we know that he means that because he says, because, you know, you people who say I'm of, I'm, I'm of Paul, did Paul die for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Obviously, the answer is no. Well, then you're not of Paul. Well, but who did die for you? Christ did. Uh, who, in whose name were you baptized? Christ's. Okay, so you are of Christ then. You're not of Paul. You're not of Peter. You're not of, uh, you know, Apollos. You're of Christ. So you all need to say the same thing. You were all baptized with the same baptism into Christ. You all, Christ died for all, and therefore you're all his. You're not mine. You're not Apollos's. You're not Peter's. You're Christ's, and that's what you all need to say. That's what he means by say the same thing. Now, if, if one thinks that he means you have to say the same thing about everything in the world, well, uh, then you're going to have to have mind-numbed robots, and you're going to have to have one person who decides what everyone's going to say, and then everyone's just going to repeat robotically what that person says. Now, I realize there are some church leaders who would like for that to be the case, as, as long as they get to be the ones who say what everyone has to say. Um, you know, it, it's, it's one thing for people of four different denominations to read this and say, hey, I agree with Paul, we should all say the same thing. But each of them is going to say, everyone should say what I'm saying. Everyone should have our doctrines. But there's another denomination that says, no, no, we should all say this. We should all say what we say. You know, you can't, I mean, if you're going to say everyone needs to say the same thing, well, how do you know that your church leaders are the ones who are saying the right thing? You know, because after all, there's a lot of Christians who don't say the same thing your church leaders say. Maybe your church leaders are the ones who are supposed to change and say what the others say. Well, of course, it's impossible for all Christians to say the same thing about everything. And Paul was not interested in that. In fact, Paul, in another place, in Romans 14, said uh, about the church in Rome, he says, some of you believe you should uh, refrain from eating everything but vegetables. Others think it's okay to eat everything. Uh, some of you think we should keep one day above others. Others of you think keeping every day alike is okay. And what's he say? He didn't say, okay, we need to all say the same thing, so all of you say this about that. No, he said, let everyone be fully persuaded in his own mind. So Paul actually is saying, you've got the liberty to, to see it differently than somebody else. It's not necessary for all of you to agree on everything, but it is necessary to agree and all say the same thing about who you are of. You see, the, the, the sin here is saying, I am of Calvin, or I am of Arminius, or I am of, you know, uh, John MacArthur, or I am of, uh, you know, you name it, uh, Jack Hayford, or, you know, any, any teacher that impresses you, or I am a Steve Gregg, God forbid. But, I mean, you know, any teacher that, that impresses you and, makes, and you, you know, buy some of the things they say, or maybe most things they say, you're not of that person. You know, when Paul 
goes on in First Corinthians after this, he says, who is Apollos and who is Paul? Now, this is in the context of his saying, some of you say, I'm of Apollos. And some of you are saying, I'm of Paul. Well, he says in chapter 3, verse 5, who then is Paul and who is Apollos? We're servants through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one. The Lord Jesus is the one you are of. You're not of Paul or of Apollos. Paul and Apollos are just servants in the same team. He said, I planted the seeds and Apollos watered the seeds, but God gave the increase. He says, neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. So he's saying, Apollos and I both had something to do with building the church. I planted the seeds before he got here. When I was gone, he came and watered the seeds and the church grew. God, it's God's church. God's making it grow. You're not of me, even if I planted the seed. You're not of Apollos, even if you didn't get saved until he came along. And, you know, it's, you're of Christ. So this is, yeah, he, you should never say, I, I am first and foremost a Baptist or a Pentecostal or a Presbyterian or a Catholic or a Anglican. I mean, it's, I don't have any objection to people attending such churches if that's where they worship God well. And if that's where they find fellowship that, you know, that glorifies Christ, I don't care what church you go to, but to say, this is who I am, this, this, this denomination gives me my identity. Well, well, if that's true, then your identity is divided from everyone whose identity is in another denomination. No, we're all of Christ. It doesn't matter where you go to church. Well, I'm not saying it doesn't matter where you go to church, but wherever you may, wherever you may go to church, uh, that doesn't define who you are unless you're not a Christian. If you, you could be a Baptist and not a Christian. You could be a Methodist or a Presbyterian and not a Christian. But you could also be any of those things and be a Christian. And if you are a Christian, then your identity is not being a Methodist or a Baptist or a Presbyterian. Your, or your, your identity is, I am of Christ, period. And we're all supposed to say that same thing. And that's what Paul yeah, means. They would actually, if you were attended a service of another uh, faith, they'd disfellowship you too for that. Yeah. What's your view of shunning? Well, shunning is, shunning is what Jesus suggested when a person sins and will not repent, even though he's given several opportunities to do so. In Matthew eighteen fifteen through 17, Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go to him privately. And if you win him over, that's great. You've won your brother. It's all good. But if you don't win him over, bring two or three witnesses with you so that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. If he won't hear them, then take it before the church. And if he doesn't hear the church, then let him be to you like a tax collector or, uh, uh, or a pagan, uh, a heathen. Now, that's shunning, you know, but where does that start? It starts with the man sinning, and it continues only if that man doesn't repent of his sin. Now, if a church shuns you because you fellowshiped at some other church, well, that's not a sin, so they have no business shunning you. They have no business shunning somebody who doesn't believe all the things they do. Uh, shunning is how you treat a sinner who will not repent, a, a sinner in the church. Uh, Paul did say in the same, well, Paul said when he was talking about the Corinthian church, he said, we don't do this to unbelievers, of course. Uh, we don't judge unbelievers because they're not in the church. But, but those who are in the church, if anyone calls himself a brother and he's sinning, uh, well, then that has to be practiced. 
so the idea is to keep the church pure from people who are living in unrepentant sin, not from people who disagree with me about something. Disagreeing with me is not sinning against me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate your, uh, your views there. Thank you. Okay, Jacob. Thanks for your call. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Dennis from Michigan. Welcome to the Narrow Path. Hello, Steve. Hi. Um, I have a quick question. Should a Protestant uh, observe Lent, and should they take the ashes on Ash Wednesday? Well, if should, usually the word should means is there an obligation. Uh, no, there's no obligation. Uh, Lent is never mentioned in the Bible. Ash Wednesday is never mentioned in the Bible. Most of the uh, church holidays in the church calendars are not in the Bible. Um, that is, the observance of them is not. The, the apostle, as far as we know, the apostles didn't observe any of that. Uh, we, we don't have any reason to believe that anyone that, that they converted or that were, that were in the churches that they were overseeing did any of those things. Those are traditions that came along later. Now, if we're obligated to follow every tradition that came along in the church, well, then we might consider that those traditions are something we'd be obligated to do also. But I've never been of the mind that we have to keep the traditions of the churches uh, unless they're commanded by the apostles, and they aren't. So uh, I don't say that... Now, if you're saying, is it wrong for a Protestant to do that? And I think maybe your question means that. Should they, meaning... Should they not? Um, well, I'd say, I don't know. I, I've never, you know, I grew up uh, in, in Protestant churches, and I've been in the ministry for 54 years. But it wasn't until a few years ago I even knew what Ash Wednesday was. I've never kept Lent or anything like that because I can't, I can't imagine what for. Um, some people maybe could tell what they do it for, but I, I don't have any reason to do it. If it is like saying, well, I want to, you know, I want to be devoted to God for these last 40 days before Easter. Well, what do you want to do the other you know, 325 days of the year? Not be devoted to God? I, I can't, I just don't have any uh, de desire to be less than fully devoted to God all the time. So I'm not sure what I could do differently in those 40 days. Uh, you know, if I give up meat for that period of time, is that because I think meat is a bad thing? If I do, then I shouldn't eat meat any time at Lent or any other time, you know? Uh, so, I mean, that's just kind of me. I, I've, never had, uh, I've, I've never had any interest in those kinds of traditions. Uh, but for some people, maybe it's meaningful. I don't really know what's all implied by it. I've never, I've never been in a church that practiced these things, and I can't find anything, not a word about them in the Bible uh, or in the earliest church history. So, uh, it's just something, something that's developed, and you know, I suppose if a Christian, if a Protestant can do it for the glory of God, I don't know, I'm not sure how God is glorified by it, but if, that, if that's between them and God, I can't fault them for doing something that they're doing for the glory of God. On the other hand, uh, you know, is it somehow a mandate? Not even, not even a little bit. No, there's not a, not, not a word in the Bible about that kind of thing. Thank you for your call. Uh, Terry in Torrance got dropped earlier. You're back. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for taking my call, Steve. Um, uh -huh. I've listened to you quite a bit over the years, and I've never heard anybody talk to you about um, the Shroud of Turin, and I'm sure you've got an opinion about that subject. Well, the Shroud of Turin is something I 
I do have an opinion about, but I don't have any certainty about my opinion. It's an opinion that that I don't think about very often because I don't think it's that important for me to, to have it. But uh, my mm-hmm. opinion is that the evidence seems pretty good, that the Shroud of Turin is something um, that had a supernatural origin. Um, now, uh, it may be someday that they'll find out it, it doesn't, and if it doesn't, it won't make any difference to me because I've never placed even uh, 1% of my faith in the Shroud of Turin. I don't have any concerns about it. But, but I mean, from the documentaries I've seen, and I've never done tests on it, never will, but people who've done scientific tests on it, it seems to me like the only thing I ever hear about it is, uh, uh, is favorable toward it could very well be the Shroud that, was, that Jesus was buried in. Um, and the image on it may have been created by some inexplicable supernatural uh, force at his uh, resurrection. Uh, now, while I believe fully in his resurrection, I don't, I don't see in the Bible anything that would say that his resurrection released such kinds of forces as would make an imprint on his shroud. But, I mean, I guess, you know, I can't think of any better explanation for how that imprint was made. Uh, it, it does seem to me that all kinds of tests have been done to see, you know, if they can explain it naturally. And I, I don't think I've, I don't think they've found anything. So I guess my private opinion, I certainly wouldn't affirm it, you know, in such a way as, well, if this isn't true, then somehow my faith crumbles. Uh, my private opinion is it probably is genuine. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm probably with you 100% there, I kind of looked into it and uh, it seems favorable the uh, evidence um, that it's something supernatural rather than it's just a fake you know yeah, it yeah seems, I think it, I think the, the evidence I've seen has all been favorable to that conclusion and I don't go looking for evidence it's not like I've read Christian books or Catholic books or anything like that about it I just see you know whatever specials they put on TV about it or you know articles here and there that are not particularly uh, Christian, although Christians have also published about it. I just don't, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think very much about it. Um, I'm not into relics. You know, if they found a splinter of the true cross that Jesus died on, uh, I'd say, well, that's, I guess that's interesting. But uh, I, I'm just, I don't have any uh, superstitious or magical, uh, you know, interest in relics and stuff. But I mean, if it is genuine, then Jesus, we have some idea of what Jesus may have looked like. On the other hand, I don't care what Jesus looked like. So, you know, it's one of those things that I think it could be genuine, but I, I, it's not something I have any of my faith uh, resting on. And if it's not genuine, uh, you know, if, some, if they prove it isn't, it won't have any impact on my faith in any way at all. Okay, uh, John from Fort Worth, Texas, not much time. Go ahead. No, John? Okay. How about Sabrina from Nevada? Sabrina, go ahead. Hello. Yes, I have a question about um, the book of Job. And Uh my question is, why, first, who the author was of that book? Do you know? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. It was written anonymously. It's written anonymously. Yeah, but the the possibility is that Job wrote it. Yeah. Okay, that Job wrote it. Okay, so what was the purpose of all the suffering that Job did? I guess that's my question. 
Well, that's well, the big they, question, isn't right. it? That, that's the whole question being discussed uh, by Job and his friends. They never figure it out. And when God shows up at the end and speaks for about six chapters, he doesn't answer the question. Basically, he says, uh, you know, who are you to, to question me about these kinds of things? You know, did you create the universe? Do you think you're smarter than me? Do you think I don't make good decisions? You know, and uh, so God kind of leaves it unanswered. But, I mean, we can kind of see in the opening chapters that part of the reason it happened, maybe the whole reason, was to test Job. Uh, to, the, the devil accused Job before God and said, Job doesn't love you. He's just serving you because you make him rich and, and bless him. And God said, no, I don't think it's that. And the devil said, well, let me, take, let me take those things away from him and you'll see he won't bless you. So this was a test. Job was under a test. And I do believe that our, our temptations are a test also. I think when we have trials and so forth, I think, I think we learn the book of Job that uh, as God, let's put it this way, Satan cannot touch us without God's permission. The Bible says in Psalm 34, I think it's verse 8, the angel of the Lord encamps around about those who fear him and delivers him. And Job, the devil complained about Job that God had put a hedge around him and that the devil couldn't touch him without God's permission. I think the same is true to us. God uh, doesn't allow the devil to, to touch us unless he has a reason, even if we don't know what the reason is. At the very least, we're being tested to see if we'll trust God in the midst of uh, you know circumstances that we can't understand. And there's many other possible reasons. You know, Suffering can be humbling, which is a good thing. God sometimes deflates our pride. Paul said because he, he would be in danger of getting inflated or exalted above measure, God gave him a thorn in the flesh to torment him. Yeah, well, suffering does humble you. And there's a lot of other things it does. It can make you more compassionate toward others who suffer. Well, there's, the Bible gives a long list. In fact, you might want to listen to my lecture series called Making Sense Out of Suffering, because I do talk about Job and many other scriptural passages that have a lot to do with this. It's called Making Sense Out of Suffering. You can get it at our website, thenarrowpath.com. It's free. You can listen for free. The Narrow Path is listener-supported. You can also donate at the website if you want to, though everything's free. It's thenarrowpath.com. Thanks for joining us. God bless.